thank you for the morning. Thank you for the day in which you come to your family to worship who you are. We pray, Lord, that our focus will be truly are seeking what your goodness is, what your purpose was in the creation. What the, the reason was that you funded us with all. And the fact that you put this body together so many years ago, and that here we are, still standing, trying to claim your name, help us to be worthy as you chose to do so. And help us first and foremost to stand right before you, that each soul here will take responsibility to, to confess our sins before you, to be honest and open about who we are and where we're at with you. And then, Father, help that fellowship and that, that feeding on your word to be all that we need to grow and to be able to not just stand ourselves with the Lord, <coughs> brothers and sisters. Uh, we ask your blessing now on Dave as he puts forth your word. I thank him for his time spent in study. Father, we rely on the teaching of the Spirit to just do that will grow in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, usually I start with the psalm, but we're going to go ahead and, and take a look at Proverbs chapter 3 today. You ever think about the legacy that you're leaving? Proverbs what? Uh, Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to read uh, chapter 3 verses 1 through 12 as our opener this morning. But as I was pondering uh, what passage I should choose to kind of introduce our discussion this morning, I just kept coming back to this uh, section of scripture um, because I think that what we do uh, affects people around us. We leave a legacy and we need to be constantly aware of that, um, both for our own growth as well as for uh, the Lord's kingdom work that he's doing going forward. Would somebody like to read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Hitch. The rewards of wisdom. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your health and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with blessings and will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as the Father corrects the Son in whom he delights. Amen. Who, who wrote that? God wrote it, but who wrote it? Solomon wrote it. Solomon was David's son and got to see a lot of uh, David's later life as David was king and uh, learned a lot from his father. And we can see that legacy, when, one of the things that, you know, we read last week, Psalm 37, I called it David's graduation psalm, um, kind of as he's reflecting back at the end of his life what he's learned. He passed uh, at least a portion of that on to his son, Solomon. 
And at the heart of this passage, we read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge or know him, and he will make your path straight. So one of the things we've been looking at in, uh, in David and Saul is we've been looking at what they lean on. Which direction are they leaning? Uh, numerous times during a day, we come to a decision point. And I've been uh, teaching through James on Friday night, and we've been unpacking that and the, the nature of how God um, tests our faith. Not that God tests us, but our faith, if it's genuine, will be tested. And in each test, you basically have a choice to choose the good and shun the evil. And that's what we've been looking at as we go through David and Saul, as David's character is being developed and he comes to these, these decision points in his life, he is leaning or choosing one way and Saul is leaning or choosing another way. And uh, I'd like to point out that when we make decisions, if we find that we've made the wrong decision, we see that the Lord corrects us. He reproves us. As a, a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Now, if you've ever been on the, the business end of the stick... When your parents giving you the, the the correction, it's not happy, and you wouldn't think that that's a father who delights in his son, but indeed that's what correction is about. David got correction and Saul got correction, and they responded to it differently. We want to pay attention to what the response of these men was because they're put in front of us, uh, contrasting a correct response, what it means to actually. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding. And we need to qualify this a little bit. Yes? Uh, just a question on verse 6. Yep. So um, it ends, and he will make your path straight in the NSB. Yep. Uh, I think I memorized it, uh, you know, to correct your paths. Okay. Yep. This is a little bit critical. <laughs> so, what is that the same? Is that, yes. I mean, what does it mean to make mean? your path straight? Yeah, what does that mean? Um, yeah. Um, one of the things about uh, God's will, we understand that there's a decorative will, that which he decrees, and that is going to happen according to his decree. And so we understand that we live in a world of natural law, which is the law that God created, that a better way we would call it created law, uh, and that's how things work. And that's the decree of God. And you can't violate that. The same is true about uh, sin, the nature of sin and separation from God. He decreed that that could have no place in his kingdom. So to sin separates you from God and leads to death. Right. So it's a natural consequence, we understand, of uh, not being within God's decreed will. Uh, but there's also his... Uh, his permissive will, that which he desires. And that's where our choice comes in. He puts before us um, the good and asks us to choose. Will we choose the good and leaning into him, or will we choose our own way and our own path? And this idea of straightening paths is that if you get on the path, God will encourage you to take the straight way to him. So that's why in the NASB it says he'll make your paths straight. But he doesn't make your choice for you. Right? A choice is yours. 
That's the freedom that God has given you. And um, within that freedom, he desires that you choose him, but he doesn't command it. He doesn't decree it. And if you get off path, when you come to the Lord and you lean into him, he will correct your path. He will make it straight. So that is a directing, right? Directing back to him. So either interpretation is actually correct, and it has to do with our understanding of choice and how we respond to God's permissive will. Does that help unpack that a little bit? Yeah. And a lot of times you say there's different things uh, don't turn to the left or to the right. In other words, right. Did your path right. straight. And, and we understand that there were lots of opportunities for David to make different choices, just like there were lots of opportunities for Saul to make different choices. And the um, God's desired path was not always obvious. In fact, let's take a review of last week real quick. What was happening in chapter 28 of 1 Samuel? That's where we finished last week. So what happens is, is that uh, there's this statement, which is kind of um, a little bit out of place, and we'll come back to that this morning, about David. And David uh, is basically put into a box, right? He's, he's the anointed king of Israel, the Hebrew children, and, but he's not the reigning king in the sense that he hasn't uh, actually been anointed by the people yet. He hasn't been chosen by the people, even though he's been chosen by God for this role. He knows this, and the period of formation that he's been going through, about 14, 15 years, um, God's been refining his character, right? And he's continually learning to, to lean into God and not trust in his own understanding. Now, that doesn't mean that he's inactive, because we understand that when he's finally, you know, had enough of Saul uh, trying to kill him, he goes to the Philistines, which is a non-intuitive path, right? Go into the heart of the enemy because your other enemy won't follow you there, right? So what you see is that David is getting in this narrower and narrower and narrower, more confining box to the point where he actually wins the heart of the king of Gath, Achish. And uh, Achish, we read, was willing to make him his bodyguard. And that word is the keeper of my head, which is the irony of the situation, that he actually took Goliath's head and all of a sudden he's put in a position of the king of Gath, where Goliath was from, of guarding the king's head, right? And, uh, and the king says, um, we're going to go to war. So David is confronted with, well, I'm going to go to war against the people that God has anointed me to protect. And yet, God has put me in this place of uh, being in the camp of the enemy, right? What do I do? Well, he trusts God. He says, I believe that God knows what he's doing. Um, and he makes the statement about how he's made and how his character is formed. He says, no assuredly that, uh, well, that's, that's a quiche. Uh, David says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. <clears throat> in other words, he doesn't claim that he's going to go out and kill Saul. He claims that he's going to operate according to God's design. So Akish would read that if he's 
thinking that he's going to manipulate God, that David's going to serve him and fight for him. Um, David can have a completely different understanding of that. Right? That he's being faithful to whatever God has called him to do in the place that he's put in. Because he doesn't know the ultimate plan of God. And I think that that's very important, that he doesn't know the ultimate plan of God, but he trusts God. Now we get to Saul. What's happening in Saul's life? Saul sees that the Philistines are, are gathering to come against him. And I'm going to use the map here. So we've got uh, Israel. Now is that in focus and can people see that? Because I'm not the best judge on that. Pardon? Yeah. yeah. Um, this is, of course, Israel. Uh, and what you see is, uh, this isn't all of Israel, but it's most of Israel. Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea. Uh, this is Judah down here. This is where the Philistines hang out. And it was at Aphek right here that, and I know you can't read that, that uh, uh, David and Achish had this conversation. Because it was at Aphek, uh, which is just, just north on the coastal plain, plateau here, that, uh, if you recall from earlier in Samuel, that's where the uh, Jewish people, when they came against the Philistines in a war, lost the ark. Because they brought the ark of God to go before them as their talisman, essentially. And uh, they were bringing the magic of God into this battle. And God said, well, number one, I'm not your magic talisman. Number two, um, you don't have me in a box, right? And uh, he was their God. He, uh, they were his people. He was not their God in that sense. That they didn't own him and control him. Well, this is where the, the Philistines were gathering. And this is where this conversation between David and Aphek takes place. <coughs> but David had been hanging out here in the south. In fact, he had been in the city Ziklag, which I can uh, zoom in a little bit more. But Saul is a little bit further to the north. Let's go a little bit further to the north here. So he's up here in the Jezreel Valley, and uh, he took the route in uh, from the hill country down here and ended up on Mount Gilboa. Now I can zoom in a little bit. And so he heard that the Philistines were mustering their armies in Aphek. The Philistines came up this route in the coastal plain and either cut through here south of Carmel or more likely came out here near Megiddo. They took, uh, actually it'd be right here, they took this valley, if you can see it, popped out near Megiddo and came across to this mountain here, uh, Shunem. And my computer's doing weird things again. I apologize for that. I will replace it someday. Uh, Saul comes up with his armies and he ends up at Mount Gilboa because he takes the classic route through Ephraim and the hill country. And Saul is freaking out. It's like, wow, they got a big army, they got heavy duty armament. Um, I think we're in trouble. So where does Saul turn? A medium. Pardon? A medium. A medium. And that medium is from the city of Endor. So Saul, by night, sneaks around and comes up to this city of Endor to meet this medium. Why does he go to a medium? Because he tried God and he couldn't get an answer. God wasn't talking to him. That's right. Why was God not talking to him? Pardon? 
No dreams, no prophets. Right. There was no dreams, no prophets, and no priests. And no priests right? Samuel had died, so the prophet was gone. He killed off all the priests. And God had closed up all other sources of revealing his uh, word to Saul. The, the question I would ask is, how does God expect, or how does Saul expect God to talk to him? So the, the prophet's gone, the priest is gone, dreams have dried up. How does he expect God to talk to him? How do we expect God to talk to us when we don't clearly uh, see him actively, supernaturally working in our life? The, the way we tell him to talk to us. Pardon? Yes. The way we tell him to talk to us. Right. So what Saul wanted was not to know what God's will was. He didn't want to draw near to God and be a man after God's own heart. Because if he did that, he would be looking for God everywhere. Right? You know, we read in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. That means they actually speak to us. And as we were going through James this last Friday night, I was trying to help somebody understand how God is continually speaking to us, whether we listen or not. Um, and the example I gave was breath. Every breath you take is a gift from God. So it says that in James. All good gifts come down from the Father. Right? So he is above creation. He's transcendent, but he also interacts with his creation to the point of actually sustaining you in every breath that you take. So God is actually telling you who he is every breath in you take. And you have the opportunity to proclaim who he is every time you exhale. So that's how close you can be to God, aware of your own breathing. And this isn't yoga or Eastern philosophy. This is an understanding of who God is and how close to you he is. In fact, Paul, when he gave... Uh, a sermon uh, or a teaching to the philosophers of the day on Mars Hill in Athens. That's where he started. He started, you know, this God is in a box, the one whom you're seeing. And he tells them who the God of creation is. And he says he's closer to you uh, than your own breath. In fact, your own poets have said it. We are his children. And that's expressing a closeness with God. And so Saul is not seeing or hearing God active in his life. And the reason why is because his heart has leaned a different way. He's not leaning into God. He doesn't want to know God's will or God's heart, but he wants to know God's plan so that he can manipulate God or God's plan to execute his own plan, which is Saul wins, David loses. Right? I mean, that's basically the bottom line. So, when Saul uh, decides that he needs to know God's plan and there's no prophet and there's no priest because one, one died naturally and the other he killed off, um, he has no choice but to turn to the supernatural, the, the magic that was alive in the land, the mediums. And it's interesting that Saul, he disguised himself and he goes to the woman and who's the medium, and he says, I want you to conjure up a spirit for me. She says, well, I can't do that. You know, the king has decreed 
that we would not have any uh, magicians, naturalists, or not naturalists, magicians or mediums in the land. And this is in uh, chapter 28, verse 9. You know what Saul's done, how he's cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then lying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Now what's interesting is that Saul will change what he has decreed as king to meet his own needs. So he made this command, but when it didn't suit his needs, he changed it. Right? So you can see the heart of Saul revealed here and where he's leaning. And he goes to this, um, this woman asking for magic. And this is a point that uh, Doug wanted me to go into a little bit more depth. It's, it's kind of a rabbit trail to the discussion, but it never says that magic is not um, real. In fact, if it wasn't real, God would say, get smart. He wouldn't say, don't go there. Right? If we're being deceived because it was not uh, the truth about reality, he would tell us that. But what he says is, no, there's this whole realm of spiritual reality that you should have nothing to do with. Don't go there. And that's exactly where Saul goes. He does the most... uh, heinous thing to God. And in fact, Samuel said that that was one of the worst, uh, we go back to what Samuel said when he disqualified Saul. It's in chapter 15. In chapter 15, verse 22, when Samuel was telling Saul why he was being rejected, he said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of grams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, it's interesting that when Saul has this experience with the medium and she actually brings up Samuel. And Samuel then has this discussion with Saul. Samuel says, hey, what did God already tell you? Right? You're not listening. It's not that God's not speaking. You're not listening. Right? And uh, he hears that because of his disobedience, which includes divination, he's going to Uh, end up, just as God said, dead. In fact, it's going to occur shortly. And that, in fact, the whole of his army is going to be taken by the Philistines. And the Hebrew peoples, rather than being protected, as God designed the king to do, are going to become captives of the Philistines. So that was the story about Saul. But David we have a different response. And we want to see that contrasted response today. We're going to actually read through chapter 29 and 30. So that's, uh, in my Bible, that's almost two pages. Would somebody like to take on reading uh, 1 Samuel chapter 29 and 30? We got we got to take her back here. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, while the Israelites were camping by the spring, which is in Jezreel. And the Lord of the Philistines were preceded 
preceding line by hundreds and by thousands. David and his men were proceeding on their on in the rear of Achish. Then the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years? And I have found no fault in him from the day that he deserted to me to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Make the man go back, that he may return to his place where you have assigned him, and do not let him go down to the battle with us, or in the battle he may become an adversary to us. For with what could this man make himself access, accept, acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sing in, in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Asish said, called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out and you're coming in with me, in the army are pleasing in my sight. For I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Now, therefore, return and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. David said to Asish, But what have I done, and what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? But Asish replied to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight, like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He must not go up with us to the battle. Now, then, arising early in the morning with the servants of your Lord, whom you have, who have come with you, and as soon as you have arisen early in the morning, and have, have light, depart. So David arose early, and he said to his men, to depart in the morning, to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, and the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev, and had overthrown Ziglag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, killing anyone and carrying them off uh, and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with them lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were in each of each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abathar, the priest, and the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abinathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So David went, he and the six hundred men who were with him, and came to the brook Bessor, 
where those left behind remained. <coughs> but David pursued he and four hundred men and two hundred who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Bethsaida remained behind. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. They gave him bread and he ate, and they provided him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of thick cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate. Then his spirit revived, and then his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt. I am the servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a red raid on the Negev of the Cherethites, and on that which belongs to Judah, and on the Negev, Negev of Caleb, and we burned the Ziglag with fire. Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. When he had brought him down, behold, there was spread over the land, all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that, had, that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of the other livestock, and they said, This is David's spoil. When David came to the two hundred men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the birth Bezor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we had recovered except to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then David said, You must not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered us into the hands of the band that came against us? And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is, for as his share is, who goes down to the battle? So shall his share be who stays by the baggage? They shall share alike. So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoils to the elders of Judah. To his friends, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of your enemies of the Lord. Those who were in Bethel, and those who were in Ramoth of the Negev, and those who were in Jethir. And to those who were in Aor, and to those who were in Sifmoth, and to those who were in Eshtemoah, and to those who were in Rakal, and those who were in the cities of the Jeremelites, and those who were in the cities of the Kenites, and to those who were in Horm 
Hormah and those who were in Boahashim and those who were in Ashtod. And to those who were in Hebron and to, those, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. Thank you. It's a long passage. Those names at the end. Yeah. Well, we'll actually we'll actually look at those here in a little bit, where they are on the map and why they're strategic and uh, what David was up to. Very good. Thank you. Uh, it's a long passage, but it's uh, a single story. So it starts out um, where the Philistines are mustering their armies here at Aphek. And they're getting ready to push north and head in through this uh, valley here. Through, actually, they come north and they push through this valley here. And, uh, and enter into the Jezreel uh, valley here. And then they push across. So they're mustering their armies here. Now, while they're mustering their armies, the other four kings of the Philistines come up and ask uh, Achish. They say... So, what's with David? Isn't he our enemy? Isn't he the one that they said, you know, Saul kills his thousands, but David killed ten thousand, tens of thousands, right? Is this the guy that we want to go with us into battle? Because he'll surely turn on us. And in order to win the favor of the king, Saul, he'll turn on us and become that ten thousand slayer again, right? And uh, it's a reasonable question. Um, why do you think that they would ask that question? I say it's reasonable. Is it reasonable? Yeah. Why? What do they see that Akish doesn't see? His history, I guess, where, where David's true loyalty really is. Right. So or this, it should be. or where it should be. Yeah, it should be. Right. Now. How often do we recognize things as they should be and not really as they are? That's a question. Yeah. And in a sense, they were seeing things as they are, and Akish was seeing things as they should be. Right? Well, I don't know that that's necessarily true either. I think that uh, David was put into this box. And in that box, he looked at what was presented to him recognizing that everything comes by the hand of the Lord, that he straightens our paths or directs our paths, and that um, he recognized that even though this made no sense to him, that he was going to be faithful to God. And if that meant that the Philistines were going to be triumphant and that he would somehow work through uh, alliance with Achish, one of the kings, to bring about the salvation of God's people, then he was willing to go there. Um, that is a question that fortunately the author doesn't uh, doesn't leave for us and that we can ask the question well what would he have done all we can do is speculate would he have been faithful to actually kill his brothers and God knew this right it's like how tight of a box can David be put in are you going to push him to the point of actually having to make that decision um believing to be true to what God has put before him to do, and that there were times when people turned on the Hebrew peoples, when they were disobedient, right? God did that. When he brought Nebuchadnezzar 
against the people in uh, of Judah, um, he devastated the place. And he said, this is for your good. He said this through Jeremiah. And he said, please, return. Don't get wiped out. But the people wouldn't do it. And God himself destroyed the people in order to save them. So would David have had that heart, the heart of God, to act in a way that we would find particularly offensive? I don't know. Fortunately, God didn't want to tarnish the character that he had built in David. And he gave the king of Gath wisdom to say, you know, I believe that you're a good man. In fact, it's your character that makes me want you to be with me. But the other kings believe that you're a good man too. And it's your character that makes them not want you with them. Right? So it's an interesting statement about David's character by both parties. Well, to David's king, one, one of the unique qualities to it is how he had influence over the nations around him. And when you look at this, I mean, this is Nixon going to China, kind of, yes. with the idea that when he does get on the throne, he has a relationship with the Philistines that no one ever had. And he's able to quiet that. Yes. And deal with that. And we have to wonder how that affected the future course of events in his dealings with the Philistines. Now, that's a classic line from a Star Trek movie, only Nixon could go to China. Um, we could make that a classic line from our study of Samuel. Uh, only David could go to the Philistines in, with a peace offering, essentially. But interestingly, God says, no, I'm not going to put you in that box. I'm going to put you in a different one. I'm going to send you south. So David ends up going back to where he come from. And I'm going to take us a little bit further south from Aphek down onto the coastal plain. Ashdod, Ekron, and down here in the lower lower left-hand corner, you'll see Ziklag. And I don't know if you can read it or not, but here is, here is Ziklag right here. Um, here's the, the five cities of the Philistines. You've got Gath, Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and way over here on the board that you can't see is Gaza. And uh, David goes back to Ziklag. And what happens in Ziklag? Pardon? Burn. And all the women and children and animals and goods have been taken. Pardon? All been stripped. And who did this? The, the Amalekites did this. What do we know about the Amalekites? That's right. Saul was supposed to wipe these guys out. Because they come and do stuff like this. When your back is turned and you're most vulnerable, these terrorists come in, bam, and hit you. And they take that which is most valuable to you, your wives and your children. That's what it emphasizes that was lost. It doesn't say that they took his gold or that they took his you know, favorite chess set. Um, they took wives and children, and they took them alive. So they were subjugating them, making them slaves. And... The, the distress of this was so great that even David's faithful men thought about stoning him. They said, look what you're doing, man. Your leadership is a catastrophe. We need to kill you and get you away from us. That's what they're saying to David. 
that's why I have trouble with the idea that David wasn't going to go to battle for the Philistines, because he took every man. He did. He took every man, and here he is on the southern flank, now mm -hmm. in Ziklag. Yep. And he took every man completely north to fight for the Philistines. Yep. And so I'm looking at the fact that, you know, did David weigh out that it's time for Saul to go? You know, is this what, what the Lord had in, in mind, or, or what? And the, the fact that they march back and the guys are so worn out that they can't even yes. pursue to get their own wives and kids. Yes. You know, why wouldn't these guys be upset with David? Um, and that's a, a, a realistic question to ask from, uh, from this worldview. Um, is God really present? Is God good? Can I trust him? Can I wait on him in his time? And David answers all three of those questions. Yes, yes, yes. God is present. God is good. I can wait on God's time. And he's learned that through this period of character development, such that when he doesn't understand what God has called him to, he readily goes and says, now you're going to see how God created me. When God says, no, that's not what I created you for, and sends him south, his men lose heart, as anyone would in that situation. What does David do? Where does he turn? Now that this box has got as most constraining as it can be, he, the king of Israel wants to kill him. Um, he has to go into the, the, uh, the Philistine, the enemy's territory, get squeezed, and now his own men want to kill him. How much more constrained and in a box can you get and challenge? <laughs> and it's from that place, in that crisis, that you see David respond, which is a different response than Saul. Saul goes through a similar boxing experience. God boxes him in and puts 100,000 men against him, hundreds of thousands probably. And he sees this wall, and rather than turning to God, he turns to a medium to find out what God's up to so that he knows where to hide or what to do so he can affect his plan. Right? What does David do? He turns to God. That's right. It says in, in verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 5, it says, Now David's two wives have been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him for all the people were embittered, each one because his sons and his daughters had also been taken. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. That word strengthened has an inflexive uh, um, mood to it, or not mood. Um, what, what it voice? What it is is that uh, David mustered his strength. So it isn't that God poured strength on David. What David did is he leaned harder into God. He mustered his strength and pushed into God. And what does he do? Then David said to Abiathar the priest, son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord. Saul had inquired of the Lord too. But what was the difference? Where was Saul's heart and where was David's heart? David's heart was in this crisis... He wanted to know what the will of God was. And he was going to comply, obey, to whatever that will was. Because he wanted to be a man after God's heart. Whether perfect or imperfect. Saul had no desire for that at all. 
When you read the story of Saul, I don't see that. But David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? What's David's question? Is he worried about his favorite chess set that got taken? No. David's worried about the people's wives and children, and his wives and children. He's worried about the people of God. And he's not asking for preservation of his own life. And this is where I I stress the difference between Saul. Saul wanted to know how he could get out of this alive. And God said, you can't. You're going to die. Now Saul had a choice, even when confronted with that reality. He could have repented and said, okay, Lord, let me die for you. Let me die for your people. But he didn't. He got depressed and didn't know what to do with himself and ends up taking his own life, right? So that the enemy couldn't. That's what we're going to read in the next chapter. But David says, my life means nothing, but the lives of your people mean something, right? And so that's what he inquires about. Shall I go after him? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord said to him, pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So David went, and he took 600 men who were with him, and he came to the brook Besor, where those left behind remain. And I could point out the brook Besor, but, you know, it's just another point on the map for you. But basically, he's going after the Amalekites. So what does he do? He gets to the brook Besor, and you're absolutely correct that David had been pushed and pulled and, and squeezed and... I mean, he'd gone up with the king. He said, I'm your servant. The king says, yeah, I believe that, but go back. He goes back because people want to kill him after this march of three hard days, right? So three hard days north, back south. Uh, They get there. It's all burned. David says, what am I going to do? He follows the Lord, the Lord's uh, decree. This is what I want you to do. This is what's going to happen. And uh, he's obedient to that. So the permissive will of God, God said, you have a choice. Are you going to follow me or are you not? He says, I'm going to follow you, even to the point of death. And he takes his men that are already worn out, and he marches out into the desert, because the brook of Asor is down in the, as you get into the Negev, it gets more and more dry and desolate. And uh, he, he gets to a point where his uh, third of his men cannot even go on. Right? So he says, okay, stay here with the baggage. And he's down to 400 men. And he goes against a significantly larger Amalekite force. When I say it's significantly larger, I say that because 400 of their force escaped our camels. Oh, the kids. No. Pardon? The kids, right? Uh, it wasn't just kids. Young men. Young men. That's, that's the way you would describe, you know, uh, an 18-year-old Marine. So it wasn't their, their main body of force, I would say. Um, they were a, a pretty formidable force. Saul was supposed to kill them, and he didn't. Now, we don't have numbers. You're I'm correct. saying that you know, the 200 were, were the young guys. Right. So there's probably more of the older guys. Right. So there's probably 1,000 plus. I think, I think the reason the 400 is emphasized there, um, I mean, you got to remember, all these details that the Lord leaves in for us are to help us understand what David was up against. If 400 escaped, but David killed all the rest, that 400 wasn't 90% of the people. Right? It was a small percentage that managed to squeak out while David and his men were going through for a day and a night, um, wiping out the Amalekites, which is what Saul was supposed to do, right? And in fact, those 400 that escaped become the, the, uh, the source of the generations that would persist 
all the way up to uh, Esther's time, after they had gone through the captivity and had been restored, and she becomes the queen of Persia. And uh, Haman, who was an Amalekite descendant, uh, descendant of Agag, um, has a plan to destroy the Jews, right? So you read about that in Esther. Well, how did that happen? Well, 400 of these guys got away. It isn't that David wasn't trying to, to rescue his people. He indeed was. The Lord knew what was going to happen. And it was Saul's unfaithfulness, because Saul had the opportunity. And it was David's execution and faithfulness that brought about the rescue of these people. Not a single one of them was lost. Not only that, but then he brings back booty. Right? How much booty did he bring back? Lots. Lots. Became, became famous. It was David's, David's uh, spoils. Were part of the people of the Amalekites slaves of the Amalekites that were actually Jewish? Uh, they obviously had slaves because now we start seeing a little bit about, uh, about David. So let me zoom in here. So um, let's see if we can identify some of these spots on the map for you. Okay, so what you see here, and I don't know if you can see this or not, but David was at Ziklag, and he comes down, in order to get to the Amalekites in the south here, he needs to have a point of entry into their country. So what he does is he follows this uh, valley down, it's a very wide valley, so there's a, a way down, and he comes here to the Brook Basor. This is where uh, 200 of his men stayed to watch the baggage. And he crosses the brook Besor and he comes down here into the south to come against the Amalekites because that's where they uh, positioned themselves and they would do raiding from there. And they would raid into Judah in all directions, right? And uh, so he comes at them and he wipes them out. But we, the question was, weren't these uh, also Hebrew slaves? Well, we know that they had slaves, that that's what they would do. They took the women and the children... What was their reason for taking the children? They didn't need children. They needed slaves. Right? And women and children were safe slaves. Right? And some of the men were safe slaves. Well, we read about that he, the Amalekites had taken a slave that was an Egyptian. Not uncommon because uh, if I blew this up and you'd see that there's a spice route, a spice trade route that goes across the south of the Negev to Gaza, one of the shipping ports and that um, it's not too far from Egypt. And so Egypt would have been a major player in that shipping port at Gaza. And in fact, they have a highway. I'll go ahead and zoom out for you so you can see. So how did they get an addition in here? Well, here's Egypt, right? This is the fertile uh, Nile Delta. Um, we understand that as you move over here, you get into the wilderness of Paran. If I took that down a little bit further, you'd see that this is the Sinai Peninsula. And there's uh, the King's Highway for trading route runs north-south along here through Moab. Um, there was another route that came across to Gaza to get to the port city. Well, that happens to go right where David is, right? And the Egyptians would have been doing trading here, and they also would have had they have a, a trade route that goes by land, uh, through here, through Gaza. And they do that today, by the way. The Palestinians, Philistines, are supported through Egypt via tunnels that go from Egypt 
into Gaza. And when Karen and I were there, and we were at uh, Lachish, which is here in the, the Shvela, it's a, one of the walled cities that was destroyed by the Assyrians, um, we actually heard shelling as they were out there blowing up those guys <coughs> to interrupt the supply of, of goods to arm the, the Philistines or the uh, Palestinians in Gaza. So <clears throat> this was a natural trade route. They raided there too, the Amalekites did. So they would have taken uh, prisoners and made slaves just like they did of David's people. And that's how they got this Egyptian slave. And so what's the first, and, and the slave happens to become ill, so they leave him in the desert to starve to death. So, well, okay, your baggage, you're gone. And uh, so he's out there in the middle of the desert, uh, dying of thirst and, and hunger, and David's men come along. And they, uh, and what, what happens? What's the exchange? That's right. That's right. So here they are at the Brook Bessar, and uh, they're coming down to enter, and they, somewhere in this passage right in here, they come across this Egyptian slave. And rather than killing him because he's an Amalekite, right, they offer him food and comfort. Now, you could say, well, David was politically shrewd, because, uh, or militarily shrewd, he wanted information. Right? And the Egyptian knew that, well, if David returns me to the king of you know, uh, the Malachites, I'm dead. So the only way I'm giving you information <clears throat> is if you promise not to turn me over to them. And uh, David says, well, we're not going to turn you over to them. That's not what we're about. Rather, he's showing mercy. He's showing grace. He's providing for those who are not even his own people the same way that he would provide for his people. Recognizing that, you know, there, but for the grace of God go I. And I'm giving you a picture of David you could argue with, because it doesn't say that here, but we do see David's compassion towards this man. He doesn't kill him, he doesn't give him back, um, and the man gives him accurate information. So then David goes down, and he pursues, and he recovers all that the Amalekites have taken, rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was missing, neither small nor great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and all the cattle which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. Well, what immediately happened when David comes back, right? So he's coming back from their raiding, and uh, 400 Malachites escape and head south into the further desert. And he's coming back via the same route that he took to Ziklag, and he gets here to the brook Besor, and what happens? The guys have said that, we've been all over, we're not sure this That's right. They said, hey, we were tired, and we pushed on, and we chased him to the last man, and we earned this. And David said, you didn't earn anything any more than those that were watching the baggage, because this delivery came from God. It didn't come from your hard work. Even though you were there and you worked hard, the deliverance and the, uh, the victory in the battle came from God. And I can see that you're looking for that. Yes? Well, there's another point that's kind of related to that. This Egyptian, they actually gave him water and food before there was any deal struck. 
Right. That's that's why I'm saying painting paint this picture of David. They just saw the need and filled the need first. Yes. And then after that, it was like, oh, okay, well, who are you, by the way? <laughs> oh, hey, let me take you down. You know, so, yes. so the, the point of giving everything to the Lord, and uh, it's the Lord's battle, and it's the Lord's will, you know, as we run across somebody in need, right. it says that we should help them before we ask him for whatever. Yes. And, and that's, that's why I painted the picture of David that I did. This was a compassionate act. Um, what you see is David coming from a situation where they're going to stone him to death, right? His people are pretty angry. And he consults the Lord. He demonstrates the kind of leadership that they would expect from the king. He says, I will go first and protect my people and provide for them. And I'll serve them no matter what you ask me to do, Lord. Even if you choose to let me be stoned to death by my people. Well, his people say, how can we stone to death, David? And they follow him, totally exhausted, come to the brook Basor. He leaves 200 behind. He heads in here, and then he covers this Egyptian. What would his men want to do? First, they wanted to stone David. What do you think they're thinking about that Egyptian? Yeah, let's kill him. And the Egyptians got to know this, right? But David shows compassion. And it uses... uh, very carefully here that they gave him a fig of cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate and his spirit was revived for he had not eaten or drunk water for three days and three nights and then David said to him to whom do you belong so we understand that somehow David had won the hearts of his men that they would uh, display the same compassion and the same and, and accomplish the same vision that David had and we understand that that's a perfect model of leadership right that David had a vision of what God's uh, plan was fulfilled and he could communicate it to people almost prophetically in such a way that people wanted to join in in that vision. Uh, that's another great point because David just prayed to the Lord and said, should I go after right. The answer was yes. Yep. But he didn't tell him exactly how to do it. Right. He didn't say take all 600 men, don't leave anybody behind and whatever. Right. Or, you know, he didn't even know where to go, really, right? So he's just waiting on the Lord. I mean, right. okay, Lord, what should I do? What should I do? Here's a guy in need that help me. Oh, hey, maybe this is the path that I need to go. Right. He'll direct your path. So, yeah, exactly. And that's the point that I, I wanted to make, is that David is not inactive. He's not <clears throat> waiting for God to solve his problem. Rather, he's consulting God about what his will is. And then he goes about executing by the way he is made to, to act to lean into God, uh, recognizing that he doesn't know everything that's going to come, and that he has to lean into God to the point of asking this Egyptian slave, so what's up, man? Tell me, tell me where the Amalekites are, if you know. Or if you're just, you know, some unfortunate out here in the desert. You know. So, you, you see all of that in here, that David's taking action based upon his trust in the Lord. And that's where we find ourselves. You know, if we were trying to understand and discern the Lord's will, We need to understand that he is constantly speaking to us and that he's constantly revealing his will to us. And what we are instructed to do is to lean into him. We don't have to know his plan. All we have to do is be in his will. And that's what David's doing, not what Saul's doing. And that's what we see through here. So David gets to this point where he's coming back with the spoils and he comes here and his men say, hey, they're not getting my share. 
And David says, no, that's not right. This is all about what God has done for us. We're going to share. And he actually makes it a law under his administration and says, anybody, whether they're you know, back as the administrator, um, making sure that the taxes are collected to support the war and doing the, the books, or whether they're on the front line holding the shield and wielding the sword, they're all the same in this economy as far as their contribution to accomplishing God's work in his kingdom. That should be encouraging. Does that mean I don't have a I don't have a job as a pastor sitting up in front of a pulpit, right? But God has has called me to the position I'm in uh, at Grand Coulee Dam inside of you know many 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 tons of concrete to make sure that I'm serving God's people in the way that He's designed me, and that is no less significant than Billy Graham, right? And God's work. He has called all of us to wherever he puts us to listen to him, to lean into him, and to act according to the way that he's designed us. And that's what you see David. He's saying he's making this a law of the land. Do this. And then he goes on. He says, when he came to Ziklag, uh, he sent some of the spoils to the elders of Judah, his friends. Why do you suppose he did that? Pardon? Unite the nation. He's, he's uniting the nation, so that would be the political motive. It's a tribute. It's a tribute. These people were loyal to God and to him in a time when he was in distress. And he's still in distress. You know, He could bank this for the future. He doesn't know what's going to happen with the war with the Philistines. But he doesn't. He gives to the people of God. And the list of cities is all of these cities around here. Right? All the way up around Hebron, all the way down into the Negev, all of those places that he had roamed. He's giving back to God's people. He's providing. What does the king do? He protects, he provides, he serves. That's who David was. So now you see the full fruit of David's character. What he had just gone through God's character <clears throat> university to become is now being fully displayed. And you see it contrasted with all that Saul had the opportunity to do. And yet the final act is to fall on Saul, but you don't see any repentance in Saul at all. This is how we enter into the second part of Samuel. And that's why they divided Samuel when the, uh, the Jewish uh, scholars took Samuel and translated it into Greek, what we call the Septuagint. Um, they actually broke the writing of Samuel uh, the pro- prophecy of Samuel into two parts and this is where it breaks right here um, it's around this capstone in David's character development as he takes the throne as king and the, the fall or disqualification of Saul and we should learn from that and there's a lot more in here but I realize I've already gone over I appreciate you guys hanging with me through this we'll unpack a little bit more next week as we recap and move into Saul's final, final throw at Mount Gilboa Go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you what you're teaching us about uh, character and about our heart and how you called us in place to serve you. And Lord, uh, please help us to be uh, quick to hear, uh, slow to speak, and that in that we're leaning into you and trusting in, uh, trusting in you and your revelation and your care and your goodness um, towards us. And Lord, help us to hear 
Lord, we also ask you that you give us the courage to act, that uh, when we uh, are in your will, we know that that many times makes no sense to the world, but you still call us to act uh, on your behalf, not that you need us, but that you invite us to join you. And Lord, help us to have the courage to join. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for... um, all that you're doing, your provision for us. We ask for your protection as we go forth from here, that we'll have the opportunity to get together next week and kind of put the capstone on this story of Saul and David. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would deliver us uh, to next week and that uh, you would bless us as we go forth from here and uh, listen to the opening of the Summer of Love series that Pastor Bob has has laid out for us. Lord, we thank you for all of this and we uh, praise you and ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.